Hi there, this is A Life in Movies, the interview show from All the Right Movies, where we talk to people inside the industry about films they've worked on and outside the industry about their favourite films. Today on the show, we're talking to an industry figure who's among the most successful names in his field, a visual effects supervisor at visual effects studio Framestore. Tim Weber has a career going back to the late 1980s and has worked on some of the biggest effects movies this century. Harry Potter, The Dark Knight, Avatar, Gravity, among others. We're going to be talking about all of that and more. So welcome to the show, Tim. How's it going? Uh, Good, thank you. Very good. Great. Thanks for joining me. You're in London, I believe. That's right. Yep. Yep. I'm based in London and I've been traveling around a bit recently, doing talks and things, but yeah, usually in London. So you never quite made the move to Los Angeles then? No, there have been a couple of times when that's nearly happened. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I'm... I like living in London. (laughs) I've I've stuck it out. So you have quite the filmography, looking at your career, some huge titles that you've worked on. Before we get into those, though, Tim, I'd like to go back to the early days of your career. Yeah. So the earliest credits I found for you, Tim, were in the 1990s on TV, Merlin in the late 90s and The Tenth Kingdom. Yes, uh, that's right. I actually did one other TV show before those uh which was actually i thought a great project to work on it was gulliver's travels with ted danson it was it was a <laughs> mini series for tv it was it was the first time i had been a visual effects supervisor on something long form um previous to that i'd done commercials and pop promos and worked on things like that um so it was quite a big moment for me and it was we did hundreds of shots i remember we we had no idea what we were letting ourselves in for uh so you know we just took the leap and said we'd do it and and i won an emmy for it and uh you know i think the work was very good and and the film itself was great it's still one of my favorite ones i think it was uh, it was a great thing to work on obviously lots of full people and small people and we had to develop yeah. new techniques for for keying we we did a lot of blue screen work on it to make people tall and small and we had to develop new techniques so that we could get wisps of hair and shadows on the floor because wow. to make the people feel that they were in these different environments to make sure they didn't look as though they were cut out basically it was a great great project so how did you come to get involved in those early projects how did you break into the industry in the first place well, I broke into the industry, well, broke in, I sort of crept into the industry, I'd say. <laughs> I, I, I left I left university where I'd, well, I say I studied theoretical physics because in theory I was supposed to be studying physics and I didn't wow. spend an awful lot of time doing that. <laughs> I think I spent more time in the art school than I did in the physics lab. So, uh, so I, yeah, I had studied physics, but I was, I very much enjoyed visual art. I almost went to art school. It was a toss up between physics and art school. And, uh, you know, I carried on drawing and stuff whilst I was at university. So then when I left, I wanted to find something that combined the two, you know, those two sort of interests and skills. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was kind of the golden age of pop promos. Uh, lots of innovative work was going on in the world of pop promos. And they were doing some quite clever things and, you know, they were visually interesting. And so I went around a few companies that worked on pop promos and I got a job at Framestore making coffee. And that was kind of how I started. 
and I wasn't very good at making. Well, I wasn't very good at making tea because I didn't <laughs> drink it. So, so they promoted me instead. <laughs> yeah, people are very particular about the tea, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I started to work on uh, adverts and things like that. It was all short form because the computers in those days we used a computer. It was called a Harry, made by mm. Quantel. It could store a minute and a half of video, and this is old, small resolution TV resolution video. Uh, right. It could only store a minute and a half, and everything you tried to do on it, if you wanted to change the color, it would take three seconds before you, anything changed, and you had to change the color on a shot before you, if you were keying it over onto another shot, so combining two images, you'd have to change the color and then combine the two images and then go, oh, the color's not quite right. You'd have to go back, separate them again, change the color. I mean, it was right. incredibly clunky compared to what you can do on a mobile phone these days. But, you know, that it cost a million pounds, I think, back then to buy wow. a Harry. That was proper cutting-edge technology. Yeah. Uh, right. But really basic. So, uh, yeah. One of the people who'd worked with us before on a TV program was Duncan Kenworthy, who was a producer who he produced uh, for weddings and a funeral was the big thing he'd produced uh, at the time. And he was producing Gulliver's Travels with uh, right. Charles Sturridge. So they came and yeah, we slightly naively said, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, you know, they believed we could. Um, yeah. And in the end, we, <laughs> we made it, but it was, it was quite a challenge. But looking at your filmography, Tim, it looks like one of the first features you worked on was as a visual effects supervisor on Love Actually. Was that kind of yes. a link from Four Weddings and the Funeral to that? It, there was, absolutely, yeah. It was the same producer, again, Duncan Kenworthy, Dun Gulliver's Travels with him. They were making Love Actually. You know, they were the, it was the same team that had made um, Four Weddings, a lot, you know, a lot of the same people, Richard Curtis. And... That yeah, that was the very very early days of digital film. Being able to work on you know films which were much a higher resolution were going to be shown on the big screen, so the quality had to be that much better. Um, so again, a huge technical challenge actually back then. On Love Actually, it's a little while since I've seen the film, but there's nothing that jumps out as needing visual effects supervision. So what were you covering on that? Uh, yeah, there wasn't a huge amount. Another project we did with them had something a little bit more interesting in it with the same team. So Duncan Kenworthy producing again, Richard Curtis wrote it, was Notting Hill. And that was interesting because there's one shot in that which people spoke about and they came and talked to us and asked us about it for many, many years later. I mean, it still comes up in conversations with our clients and things. And that's it was called The Seasonal Walk. It's in the middle of Notting Hill. And it's a time passing moment. Hugh Grant's character is walking down um, Portobello Road Market and it goes through all the seasons of the year in one oh, shot, yeah, it's one yeah, long yeah. continuous shot. Yeah. Right. And so we had to shoot that as separate elements because, uh, you know, we shot a snowy bit and a rainy bit and, a, you know, and we had to shoot them all totally separately and then join them together into what appears to be one long seamless shot. And it's it's such a clever use of visual effects and an interesting way to tell the story. And it's, you know, it's a lovely emotional moment that gets the message across about time passing and his his transition from one mood to another. And it, it's just one of my favorite shots that I've worked on. So. Yeah, I know the shot. It is a great shot. It's very visual, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to be around this time then, maybe the mid-2000s, that things really took off 
for Framestoring yourself. You were visual effects supervisor on, among other titles, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Children of Men, and then a mega production, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. So how did you come to be involved working on that? Did Framestore have to pitch for the work? Yes. Framestore, like you say, around all of those films, it was getting bigger and bigger. Harry Potter was a big part of what grew the film industry in London, I'd say, because there was a regular supply of films and on each film there would be a larger and larger amount of work. So by the time we did Goblet of Fire, there was a significant amount. There was creatures and huge environments and we mm. were doing quite a lot of work. And then we had a lot more capability and we were ready, you know, to do more complicated films like The Dark Knight. And that was also a big challenge. It's sort of Again, it was a step up in resolution because Christopher Nolan, one of the first times I think he really pushed the shooting on IMAX. The whole film wasn't on IMAX, but there were some big sequences on IMAX and some of our sequences on IMAX. And the resolution you have to deal with for that was huge. And it was inc that was incredibly challenging because we, we couldn't even, when we had the scenes in the computer, you couldn't play them back at full resolution. So when you wanted to view it and check there wasn't anything going wrong, you'd have to play the bottom left-hand corner and then the bottom oh, really? right corner. <laughs> and, and, and you know, look, what, look at your work in bits and see if it was all it was all looking good or not. Is that because the equipment hadn't quite caught up with IMAX at that point? Exactly that, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, to keep the quality of IMAX, you had to have, I think we had... 7.5k images so if you think these days sort of tv tends to be 2k and then you know some a lot of netflix and stuff like that is 4k that's high resolution mm. we were working at 7.5k and it, and the the number of pixels you have is proportional to that number squared because that's the length in one direction but you're you know if you double it in one direction you're yeah. also doubling in that the other direction so you have four times as many pixels so a huge number of pixels for the computers to have to deal with the storage the playback everything was was very very challenging and of course you know christopher nolan one of his big driving things is to keep everything very very grounded in reality you know that's something that's very close to my heart i love doing very believable real feeling photo real work and he likes to, you know, do as much for real as possible and only rely on visual effects when you absolutely have to, which is something I totally agree with. I think, you know, the more you can do real, the better. And even when you are having then to do some visual effects, it will be more grounded in reality because you've got some real things to base it off. So, you know, that was a big part of what we were trying to do. And as he said himself, one of the few exceptions to his rule about trying to keep everything grounded in reality actually was one of the big challenges we had was the character Harvey Dent, who becomes Two-Face. Of course. And one side of his face is all burnt and scarred. And, you know, Christopher Nolan realized that if you did that too real, if it looked genuinely like a real scarred, horrible burnt face that would not make for a good movie you know it would, it would take people out of the movie they, they wouldn't want to watch it etc so he said this is the one time where i want to do something a little oh. bit fantastical but getting that balance between fantastical and real was quite tricky because it still had to, everything else in the movie he was trying to make as real as possible i mean you know even down to batman being able to fly he can't fly he can glide on his capes mm. and the mechanics behind it is all thought through and it makes sense it's this kind of physical reality behind it so we had to fit in with all of that uh and for it to feel real but 
it was designed so that you could see through to the muscles moving and you could see through his teeth through holes in his face and it was still pretty shocking but it was sort of over the top enough that you knew it wasn't kind of real if you see what i mean and it made it a much more <laughs> enjoyable and fascinating film to watch it wasn't sort of purely horrible i suppose so the process of getting involved in a production like that, will Warner Brothers sort of put the feelers out to all the visual effects studios saying we're looking for this kind of thing, come and do a pitch for it? Yeah, um, yes, normally there is some sort of a pitch involved, unless you have a very good relationship with people. Yeah. So typically we do little bits of artwork or we show tests or we put together a reel of previous work that is relevant. Right. And we also nearly always have to estimate the cost you know, do a mm. budget for you know all the key scenes or you know or, to, or the whole movie and then a combination of warner brothers and the director and the producer will choose sometimes one house to do all the work on the bigger movies particularly back then it's less true now but back then they were too big for a single visual effects company to do because you had to deliver it all at the same time and if you were delivering too much stuff all in one go it would be really hard work so they would spread it out across a few companies and, and in those days you know there were, as I said London was becoming a really big visual effects center so there was quite a few companies all based in Soho um, and we were all kind of quite close together and, and that was very effective then when people wanted to split it across different companies. Yes, yeah, so your role on The Dark Knight was credited as visual effects supervisor Framestore and looking at the credits like you kind of alluded to there, there was also a visual effects supervisor, BUF, visual effects supervisor, Double Negative, New Deal Studios, Cinesite. So there was quite a few studios all working on the film at the same time. Do you have a lot of overlap between what you work on? Do you, do you speak to those guys? Well, a little bit, yeah. So the other main company that was doing it was Double Negative with Paul Franklin was the, their supervisor. And then there's there was one overall supervisor, Nick Davis, who you know, coordinated all of us kind of thing. So there was two big companies and then some other companies doing other bits. So most of the work sort of is is going through the overall supervisor who coordinates us. But we also then we also have to work together a little bit. Generally, it you know, having to work together is avoided as much as possible. So, you know, trying to keep all the shots you know that we're doing separate from all the shots that another company is doing makes everyone's life much easier because trying to coordinate and you're waiting for them to finish what they've got to do on a shot and you know they're waiting for us to finish what we've got to do is, is unbelievably complicated much more complicated for some reason than you think it would be so you know it's usually a case of well we'll try and separate it but obviously you know if another company was doing all the backgrounds for a certain scene and then Harvey Dent appears in that scene we would have to do Harvey Dent they would have to do the background and there right. are times when you have to work together yeah you, you just have to try and make that as effective as possible <laughs> it's not it's not easy but but we get that so were Framestore tasked with handling specifically the Harvey Dent face CGI was anything else other than that or was it mainly Harvey Dent it there was some other various other bits so harvey dent i'd say was the sort of most complex and interesting bit we did but we had the scene in hong kong that this was one scene that was shot on imax where he escapes from a building he flies off one building it's the second well it was at the time the second tallest building in the world i think and he jumps off that and flies into another building i got to go and stand on the corner that he stands on and the 
second tallest really? building in the world, <laughs> which was fantastic. Yeah, loved it. Very scary, much more scary than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> I didn't jump off. Uh, so we had to create a computer-generated building so that he could smash through the windows. Obviously, we had to create him flying through the air. And the stuntman did, this is a classic example of how Christopher Nolan tried to keep stuff real. So a stuntman did do a jump, not off that building. He was filmed at one point standing on that corner of that building. And then separate, there was a jump of him, a shot of him jumping off on blue screen in a studio onto a crash mat. So we had the reference of how he looked on the building. We could make sure it looked exactly like that. Mm. We started the shot with him actually jumping. Um, and then we took that over. And, you know, as he flew around, we did a CG human, which was pretty tricky back then. So it was a combination of, of different elements. Um, and, and that's what makes it feel more grounded in reality is having as many of those bits as real as possible. Of course, yeah. Um, I know, I know the sh- exactly the shot that you mean. And I've never, ever noticed that was a CGI Christian Bale. No, great. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of Christopher Nolan, then we've mentioned him quite a few times. Of course, how closely did you work with him? Did you see him on the set regularly? Uh, reasonably closely. Yeah, the closer you can be to the director, the better. There are times, you know, and they're very busy. So there are times when sometimes you don't see very much of them, and that is always the biggest challenge. Luckily, I, you know, we did get enough direct contact with him to be able to do that one successfully, even though it was a pretty big movie. So it was challenging to get his time. It makes a big difference being able to hear their thoughts. It's it's how it's being able to understand the why of why they want to do something. I mean, Christopher Nolan is a really good example of this. You hear that he wants to do something in a shot, and you think, well, it's a bit strange. Why on earth do you want to do that? I don't understand that. You know, but we'll try and do it. And then you get to talk to him and he explains not just what he wants to do, but the philosophy behind why he wants to do it. And you suddenly go, oh, I see. Yeah, of course, that makes total sense. I see what he wants to do. I miss, you know, now I understand why he wants to do it. I can do what he wants to do. I can get what it is he really wants because I understand the why of it. And that makes a big difference. So, yeah, direct contact is, is much better. I've seen quite a bit of behind-the-scenes footage on The Dark Knight and some of that Christopher Nolan filmed as well. And it always seems to be really, really relaxed. I'm not sure if that's normal or if it's Christopher Nolan's style or something like that, because I would think with his kind of films being so precise, I would imagine him being quite intense, but that doesn't seem to be the case. There's a sort of relaxed intensity, I would say. He is very precise. He knows exactly what he wants. And so there is an intensity because he knows exactly what he wants, but also because of that, everyone is focused on that one thing, everyone working together. I mean, for example, he tends not to shoot with multiple cameras. So you're not sort of trying to make something work from two different angles. You, You know, everyone's focused on the one shot with the one camera, he knows exactly what he wants. And it's very, you know, he gets what he wants much more. And here's a good example of his philosophy. He's really thought through why he wants to shoot on single cameras most of the time. You know, he knows that you can get a much better view through that camera, that he doesn't want to have endless footage to look through in the edit. He'd rather have the clarity of what he wants. You know, he, I mean, I'm, I'm probably mangling slightly his philosophy for doing that from memory but you know he's really thought through why he does that and it makes total sense there's a real really strong logic behind it so he's a director who turns up and everything's been thought through already he knows how we, how they're going to do it what we're going to do and i guess that's why it's so relaxed because there's no real stress of how we're going to do this and that kind of thing 
yeah, well-planned. And to me, that's a really critical part of making a movie is for it all to be well-planned, everyone on the same page, but planned in a way that allows for changes, fluidity, yeah. happy accidents. But but if it's planned, you can incorporate those. You know, the actor suddenly goes, oh, I'd rather do this instead of that. You know, that's what you want them to bring to it. So you've got to make sure there is the room for that to happen. And if it's well-planned, it's actually easier for that to happen because you know your parameters. You can go, yeah, we can make that work. Or if it's not well-planned, you might think there's more freedom, but I usually find there's just more confusion, you know, so, so it's great to have planning, as long as you're planning to allow for the fluidity, you know, the creative fluidity. Well, the year after The Dark Knight, you were visual effects supervisor on Where the Wild Things Are, and then a huge visual effects movie in Avatar, groundbreaking digital effects on Avatar. How did you come to be involved on that one? Well, Brent Dorr were working on uh, a few sequences in that. There were the bits on the alien planet where he's not in the land of the Navi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, where he's not in his avatar. It's the more real-looking stuff. It's not the alien planet blue creatures, which I slightly jokingly say made our made our work much harder because it had to look absolutely real. It wasn't full of fancy colours and blue alien creatures. I mean, what, what uh, Weta did, who did all of that, was was phenomenal and was amazing work and, and was very, very complicated. There's a tiny bit of truth to what I say, but not a huge amount. Um, but so, yeah, we, we were doing those sort of scenes. So they, they were often just you know, one person on a blue screen um, and everything else in the shot was created in the computer but had to look photo real because it was had to right. you know, feel like it was just a space station or, you know, a, a massive warehouse of the robots, the mech suits or whatever. And I came on to the show quite late because the supervisor who had been doing it had to leave suddenly and um wasn't well and so at that point it, it was in a tricky position i'd say you know there was there was not long to go before delivery and it was there was an awful lot of work to do things weren't going well at that point so it was a very very stressful uh, you know james cameron is someone else who knows exactly what he wants and there was a lot of pressure and, and we weren't in a good place but you know to begin with but we managed to sort stuff out and it was fascinating again to work with James Cameron didn't get much contact with him because it was a huge, huge show, that one. But we we did have some, we, we did reviews with him. And again, it was incredibly beneficial to be hearing stuff directly from him as to what he wanted. And we, we managed to finish it off in the toughest few months of, of my life, probably. Really? <laughs> that. Was that because of the tightness of the deadlines? Yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah, there was a lot to do in, in a little not much time left yeah and james cameron another huge directing name has a reputation for being a bit intense on set did you see much of that well i didn't see him on set at all because i only came on during post-production um and and i had this you know fear you know when we, we sort of when we did calls with him of how intense he would be <laughs> he was i'd say it was intense but it was great uh, i thought it was really enjoyable working with him because he does know what he wants he's very specific and precise and you can really get out of him you know he's a good communicator and it, yeah it was, it was really enjoyable so then another big visual effects film came after avatar when in 2013 you were visual effects supervisor on gravity with director alfonso cuaron one of the jewels in frame stores crown i think this one isn't it 
I think so, so how, yeah. So how did you guys come to work on this film then? So, uh, Framestore had done a couple of films with Alfonso by this point. Uh, one was a Harry Potter film, the third one. I didn't work on that one. Um, but then I worked with him on Children of Men, which was uh, another huge challenge. Very, very tricky work in that. We had to create a digital baby and we had to do some very long shots, like the, the birth of the baby happens in a four and a half minute continuous shot. You know, we had a good time working with him on that. And so when he was writing Gravity, he came to us and we sat with him. I still clearly remember sitting with him in this small office, sitting on a couple of sofas. And, and he spent 45 minutes just chatting through what the story of the film was going to be about this woman in space. And, you know, a lot of it, she's on her own in space. And it was fascinating. Just, just hearing him tell the story back then was left, left me breathless. You know, I, I, do, I remember at the end of it, just feeling kind of exhausted. As he it. <laughs> um, it was quite, quite intense. And he at the time kind of thought it was going to be quite a quick and easy film to make. Um, right. It was quite a short <laughs> film. He, he just you know, envisaged we could just hang astronauts in spacesuits from wires so it looked as though they were floating around build little bits of the space shuttle or the iss and in visual effects we would extend those you know to be bigger but <laughs> the the thing about that film is he took the film language he'd used in children of men of the long shot and he really lent into that so gravity has a huge number of very very long shots the opening shot is 12 and a half minutes long the second shot is not much shorter. Uh, at one stage, they were all one shot, actually, so it was going to be 20-something minutes long. Wow. Um, those two are huge. And, and I think 70% of the movie is made up of just 17 shots. They, you know, the, the 17 shots wow. all over a minute long, and if you just string those together, that's 70% of the running time of the movie. And the, creating a long shot is complicated in so many reasons, for so many reasons it multiplies the complexity of everything else you're doing and making something feel genuinely weightless is very challenging and you know they'd done it for apollo 13 but in apollo 13 they'd they had normal length shots so they could shoot a little moment up in the vomit comet where someone was genuinely floating and they'd cut the few seconds you can get of that in with someone you know on a wire and mm. you wouldn't notice they were on a wire because it was just a short shot or they were doing something quite simple so you didn't feel right the fact that they were on a wire and you had the real weightless moment to go with this and yeah. you know if it was a close-up you could you can do all sorts of easy things but we had to, to start with a massive beautiful wide vista and then we had to come in very slowly and see George's character flying around in a, on a jetpack and Sandra's character working on the Hubble, on the electronics of the Hubble, and we had to come slowly close in, right up to an intense close-up, all continuous performance, and then two shots of them working together and both photo and camera continually choreographed beautifully, because again, without the ability to edit, you have to sort of edit your shots in the camera move, so it has to be choreographed perfectly. Uh, and you can't make changes later. You can't suddenly say, oh, what happens if we make this a bit quicker by cutting some stuff off? You can't. You've, just, you've got to move the camera from there to there. This stuff has got to happen. So that has to be planned incredibly well. And then there's, you know, action, there's destruction, there's everything 
kicks off and it's all mayhem. You know, so you've got to get all of those moments. You've got to find a technique to make all of those moments work in one continuous shot. And you cannot do that by hang, hanging people on wires in spacesuits and moving the camera around for you know yeah. just that that wouldn't work. And because of the continuous shot, the the audience is examining what's going on much more intently frankly and that you know anything that doesn't feel right they will notice much more so in the end we decided to make it largely cg basically to make the whole environment and the astronauts all of it in cg apart from their faces because cg faces uh, incredibly challenging they still are incredibly challenging very hard to not fall into the uncanny valley yeah so that was the decision and and that kind of led to a whole load of other challenges. Well, yeah, I know that from speaking to you before, Tim, and from doing research myself, that there were loads of technical challenges on gravity. I know there was a device created called the Lightbox to help with the anti-gravity scenes and shooting faces and that kind of thing. Could you tell us a bit about that, how that came about? Absolutely, yeah. So we tried to think of a number of ways to film the faces because... The tricky thing when you're making everything in CG or pretty much everything in CG really is when you then film the face, you need to make sure the actor can feel as if they've got the right stuff around them so they know what they're performing, you know, they know what's around them, where they're, you know. You also need to make sure that the lighting around them is correct. So we had to have the sun, that's straightforward. You just get a traditional light, you point it at them, that's like the sunlight. But then you also have this very, very large bounce light coming off the Earth because the Earth fills half of the horizon almost when you're in low Earth orbit. And it has lots of different colours all over it. It has white clouds and blue sea and stuff. So that has a lot of complexity to it and it's huge. And then you add to that that these lights have to move around the actor because as the actor is, in theory, rotating, spinning around, flying around, whatever they're doing in space, we can't necessarily spin the actor around. We can't dangle them upside down. It, it will be uncomfortable. It'll look uncomfortable. It won't look like they're being weightless. So we had to keep the actor relatively still and move the camera around them and the lights around them. And kind of the first solution we had to that, which we did use, was to move the camera. We put the camera on a car assembly robot. There was a small company in San Francisco who were doing their own little pieces called Autofuss. They were doing their own little pieces where they put the camera on a car assembly robot so that they could move it in interesting ways. And Christofaria, the studio executive, had come across them and, you know, we all got in contact and we worked with them to increase the capabilities of that. A, to be able to move the camera in ways that we needed to, which was slightly different to what they needed, but B, to be able to move the lights as well. So we, you'd put the sunlight on one robot a massive bounce for the earth on another robot and the camera on another we had these three robots you know moving around the actors as the shot progressed but that's quite cumbersome having three car assembly robots moving around with you know with the huge lights on them and everything it, you know they bumped into each other if you wanted to do certain things and stuff so it, it didn't work for everything so then the next concept was the idea was to create the light box as you say so that was basically it was a cube big enough for Sandra or George to get in. And we could we had a device that allowed us to move them in certain ways. We still had the camera on the car assembly robot, so it could move around in certain ways. But on the inside of this box was LED screens, like you have 
uh, well, in those days, you have a lot of them at the back of um, pop concerts, you know, giant screens. But we made, you know, all of the screens pointing in on the box. They were quite low resolution back then. They had sort of, you know, separate individual dots for LEDs. These days, they're much higher resolution. But it enabled us to put an image on these LEDs, and they were just bright enough to be able to light the character with all of the bounce light from the earth or the bounce light. For example, you know, if, if Sandra was flying towards the ISS and about to grab onto it, we could put an image of the ISS on the screen and make it get bigger and bigger and closer and closer to her. Right. And it would give us give you the light bouncing off the ISS on her face. Mm -hmm. and, and she right. could also see it coming towards her. So she understood what was happening and how right. she had to perform. Um, we still had to do a, a traditional light for the sunlight because the LEDs weren't bright enough for that. So we had a traditional light in there being moved around by hand. And these images playing back, uh, you know, complex images playing back on the on the screens, moving around them to get the environment so that their faces would fit into the CG that that we were creating later. We actually designed the lighting. We prevised, which is like a, a low res animation of that. We did that for the whole movie so that we could plan it and design it. And then we did a pre-light with Chivo, the cinematographer of of the movie so that the lighting was planned before we even got on stage um so that the lighting then you you know how the lighting for the whole shot was going to look even though you're just filming a face you know you were doing it in a way that would work for the whole shot and that was much better than what people often do or certainly did back then is they'd go and they'd light the face and then they'd try and make everything else fit that and you can't do it it's a real struggle but so we did it the, that way around which was more effective and their faces would just fit very naturally into the cg i mean we still had to do some work to make it all balanced etc but it was much much easier to fit them into the cg and create these long continuous shots well, that sounds like a genius invention, a genius idea, the light box. Is that something that's now become a bit of an industry standard? Have other people adopted that as well? Well, uh, the box and, you know, using it in exactly the way we did was, mm. uh, ha has been done since, but is only really worth it for certain shows, often shows set in space, you know, certain shots. But people have taken the basic idea and as the technology of the screens has developed, you can get much higher resolution screens now. So now people build a whole, and they're much cheaper than they were back then. People build a whole stage, and we've done this as well, um, out of LED screens. And you know, so you can have people acting, wandering around on a stage surrounded by the LED screens. Again, you've got the lighting environment you need, but the resolutions of the screens is good enough now that what you film, you can actually, if you put the correct image on the screen behind the actor, you can film the whole shot in camera. It's called in-camera visual effects. So you're generating live the image that goes wow. behind the actor and you film the actor with that behind them and you get the shot in camera. There are problems and limitations to doing that. But yeah, it's, you know, as the technology has moved on, you, you can do a lot with it. We, we sort of almost did some in-camera, an in-camera shot on gravity in the end there sort of is one where the camera goes right right close into sandra's eye and you can see the earth 
as she's spinning around at this point, rotating, and you can see the Earth reflected in her eye, and that is purely off the light box. And because oh, wow. it's just a reflection, the resolution is fine. You know, we get away with it. So, in ways, that was the first in-camera visual effect shot, I suppose. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but on the whole, yeah, the, the screens were too were too low resolution to make that work. Right so talking about Alfonso Cuaron, you said before, Tim, that he came in with certain expectations how he might make the film, and then obviously they were blown apart pretty quickly, I would imagine. So how was he to work with? That must have been a very collaborative relationship, I would imagine, then, between him and everybody. It was. It was... It was very collaborative. You know, as, as I was saying earlier, it's great the closer you work with the director. We worked very, very closely with him. He, he had his office enough on our floor that we were on in, in our building so that he could be close to what we were doing. Because no one had ever made a film that way before, it involved a lot closer collaboration between me and Chivo, particularly. Uh, it was fantastic working with Chivo Emmanuel Lubetsky, to give him his full name. He he is a genius uh, cinematographer, and I learned so much of working with him. And you know, all the departments, production design, costume, were designing things that were never physically made. We were just creating them in the computer. So it was a different relationship to normal. And because it was different, everyone had to work much more closely together because you don't just have the normal established lines of communication that people have worked out for tens of years and they know how it goes, et cetera, et cetera. It was different. We had to be much more tightly involved and much more collaborative. And that's one of the reasons Gravity was unbelievably challenging, but the most satisfying film to work on because I was at the heart part of the filmmaking process in every way and it took us three years but you know three years of being very very involved in everything about the film and that was really very satisfying two huge movie stars in this one as well in george clooney and mainly sandra bullock in the lead how were they to work with on the film and they were both great we were very lucky i'd say to have those because we had to get our cast to do some you know, unusual things and to work in unusual circumstances. George was very relaxed and very entertaining on set. And, uh, you know, uh, that that made life much easier than if he'd been a different personality. Um, and Sandra was incredibly willing to, you know, I mean, she had to she had to spend half her time in the light box in, as, or Sandra's yeah. cage, as it got dubbed at one point. Um, <laughs> and she actually said in some ways it was quite good because she was isolated in this box from everyone on this crew. And, you know, it's a bit like being isolated in space. So she she used right. it to help her get performance. But she had to do that and put her on this thing called the 12 wire rig, which was like we were puppeting her. We We could move a little sort of miniature model of Sandra around, sort of tilt it, swing it, slide it along. And that the computer would then control the wires that she was suspended from and replicate the movement we were doing on her. And she was dangling from this rig. And this was mainly for the shots inside the ISS where she's sort of floating down the corridor. And, you know, she had to act as if she was pushing herself, that it was that that was moving her along. But actually we were, but so all of that had to be coordinated, incredibly complex marks for her to hit in three-dimensional space, not just a mark on the floor like normal actors have to deal with, you know, three-dimensional space, different angles, etc., miming certain things. And she did that. I still can't believe how incredibly well she did all of that. 
and then on top of that gave a great performance very very impressed by how she managed to do that she is fantastic in the film one bit of trivia that i heard tim which kind of blew my mind if it's true was that the effects work that you guys did was so complex that the whole film if they'd been rendered by one machine would have taken seven thousand years to render uh, that, that's I can't remember the exact number, but it was it was it was the beginning of when they started to build the pyramids. So that probably is about <laughs> that sounds about right. Then, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> certainly a few thousand. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it was it was a lot of rendering. And actually, you know, we talked about sort of the innovations we had to create to be able to shoot it, but we also had to use a whole different rendering technology um, that had been not used barely at all up to this point you know and we had to make a big change at frame store and i kind of knew at the beginning that it was not physically accurate rendering and you could make stuff look photo real but you had to do a lot of human work to balance things to get the feeling of bounce light the subtle little bits it wasn't very good at creating and those make a huge difference so you don't notice them obviously but it just feels wrong if they're not there or not correct so I, I knew that was going to be a problem and the technology team at Framestore worked very, very hard to find this new renderer uh, and to re-engineer the whole set of the systems at Framestore so that we could use this new renderer and render it using that. But it then took a lot of rendering, a lot of computers to get through it. And you were nominated for and won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects for Gravity. What an accolade. So how were the Oscars? And they were great. Um, it was the second time I'd been, first, right. first time I'd won. I'd been for um, The Dark Knight, which was fascinating. It's more fun if you win, but yeah, <laughs> it's it fun either way. Um, it was such a big night for Gravity, because Gravity won a lot of Oscars that evening. Mm. So it was lovely for the whole team to be having such a great time, you know, very enjoyable. And, and the Oscars, it's interesting to see the occasion. You know, I, I've been to the BAFTAs a lot and, and that's grand and uh, I love the BAFTAs, it's great, but the Oscars is so much bigger. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, you don't realise how much bigger it is until you're there and it's just huge as an event. The thing that sums it up for me is when you're walking down the red carpet and there's one side is decorated all lovely because that's the side, the camera's on the other side looking at the one side that's all nice and you're walking down the yeah. red carpet. The other side is just all the cameras and it's a mess and you know it's, much, right. it's all kind of done for the cameras. Um, yeah. You know, so it's quite funny like that. And actually, because the visual effects was such an integral part of gravity to get a lot of the attention, Normally, visual effects is slightly ignored at events like the Oscars, frankly, you know, it's yeah. just sort of not, not of any interest. This was, I think, was one of the rare occasions where we got a lot of the attention, and that was, that was great. Well, leading on from that a little bit, something I've always found a little bit strange is how a lot of visual effects studios don't become really well-known. I mean, you've got, like, say, ILM. Maybe that's about it. You mentioned Weta before. But, like, yeah. Framestore created some of the greatest and most groundbreaking effects films of recent years, and I think even most movie fans probably wouldn't know who they are necessarily and why is that do you think why do effects teams become unsung heroes i i think there's a few reasons but it's a really good point i mean one is uh, it, the work is done by a lot of people it's very much teamwork and you know it, it's a company doing the work and people latch on to individuals more easily that makes it less personal and therefore there's less interest from the audience i'd say we come along 
in people's minds, we come along at the end and, and it's computers that do everything. Yeah. Actually, we're involved from the very beginning, from the very initial bit of planning, we're involved in the shoot and it's not computers that do it, it's artists that do it who use computers as, as a tool, you know. It's teams and teams of inc incredibly talented craftspeople and artists working on it. So, uh, you know, recently there's been quite a lot of people talking about, oh, there's no visual effects in this. Uh, we've tried to avoid visual effects and, you know, uh, tried to do it for real. And which, as I said before, you know, I fully into that philosophy up to a point, but it's almost become like visual effects is a bad thing. And I think that's a shame because it's a lot of work. It's not true that there's no visual effects in a lot of these films where people are talking like that. And we did 1500 shots on them. And, you know, that the work that goes into it, the love and the care and the artistry that goes into it from a big team of people working very, very hard is, is huge. Do you think as well, Tim, because with visual effects, say, unlike, say, music, say, John Williams, a big name, the better the work he does, the more you notice them in the film. Visual effects, the better your work is, the less you notice you in the film. That, that's a very good point, yes. Um, as, and yeah, a lot of work is 100% like that. You know, when, when you're doing uh, in what we call invisible effects, you know, so we might be working in a romantic comedy or a, you know, period drama. And if you see our work at all, we, we've done a really bad job. You know, exactly. so you should not know there's any visual effects in it. But even when we're doing, say, a, a creature like Rocket Raccoon or Paddington, if you're thinking about the visual effects, it's not a good job. People know it's, you know, there's no bear talking in the shots. Um, they know there's visual effects in there, but hopefully they're just engaging with him as a character and, you know, being carried along. And I think that's a good point. Yeah, the better job we do, the less people notice us. Yeah. And to finish it off, Tim, I have some more general quickfire style questions, if that's all right. Sure. So, of all the directors you've worked with, we've mentioned some really big names. Who was your favourite to work with? Well, that would be that would be unfair to say, but I, I would have to say um, I think I'd have to say Alfonso because uh, you know he he is a real genius, as many of them are, I'd say. But um, he is a real genius. He's you know he does he pushes things forwards. Uh, I get to work very closely with him. You know, the level of expectations of the quality he wants is incredibly high. He's not satisfied just to go the easy way. And, he, you know, he's always looking to do something different. And he makes great films, you know, so. I think you may have answered this one already, but of the films you've worked on, which film are you most proud of the effects on? Well, uh, that kind of has to be gravity. Uh, I mean, I think for obvious reasons, you know, it would, yeah. It would be that. I mean, I, the other one I still look back on and really enjoy is um, Gulliver's Travels, partly because it was really? the first one I ever did. Yeah. And, you know, what we achieved with what we had back then is actually phenomenal, I'd say. And uh, that, that's a nice little two films. Very satisfying, too. Great. And finally, if there's any aspiring visual effects artists listening to us, what would your top tip be on getting into the industry? It's really hard. It's a very different industry to when I got into it. You know, when I got in, started making coffee and, uh, you know, but then I <laughs> I got in and I just, I, I had to do everything. I was a one-man band on anything I was working on pretty much. I mean, when on all the adverts. So I learned about being on set. I learned about compositing. I learned about CG. I learned about stop frame animation because I, you know, I'd be involved with stuff, you know, all sorts of things. And even when we did Gulliver's Travels, that was pretty much just a team of two. We did hundreds of shots 
and it was me and another visual effects supervisor, or he is another visual effects supervisor now, William Barton, and it was just the two of us. So you really learned a lot. These days, it's very specialised. People right. come in and they're a modeler or a texture artist or a map painter or a animator, uh, you know, so, and they're coming out from university having trained in that specialism. Um, and, you know, we have 20 or so different departments of friends or all of them specialise in what they do. So understanding the bigger picture, which is what enables you to do great work and move on, is hard when you go in, in mm. with that speciality. And, and it's hard when you're going into the industry to know which speciality is right for you. Uh, you know, my advice is just get in, I would say, and look around and don't get into the specialization too soon until you've looked at the range of options that are there. And in your early days, particularly, but this is true all the way through, try and understand the big picture, try and understand what the departments around you are doing and why it will make what you do better and more suitable. Try and understand filmmaking, try and understand art and music and things because <laughs> they all affect what you do you know it, you know so focused on the bigger picture you need to be good at the specific expertise you have but it's also important to understand the bigger picture great advice well tim weber thank you very much for joining me thank you that's been a pleasure and that's our chat with Tim Weber. Some fascinating insights there into the visual effects that make some of our favourite films, so hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, you may already be aware that we have a regular podcast show, ATRM Classic, where three of us do deep dives into classic and hit films with some big opinions and laughs as we go. You can also support what we do by becoming an All The Right Movies patron. As a patron, you'll get access to our full archive of ATRM Classic episodes and access to our patron-only episodes. You can sign up for all of that by visiting patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. Or if you're an Apple Podcast listener, you can access the archive by subscribing directly on Apple Podcasts. Just look for the subscribe button. We also have social media accounts across Twitter, or X, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Threads, and a Facebook group, so search for All The Right Movies across all of those platforms, and visit alltherightmovies.com for more ATRM movie content. That's about it for now, though. Thanks for listening, and please come back next time. Music